Well, it is crunch time. You have nine days until Christmas. Nine shopping days. I don't know if if you have children, you know that the reverie is building. It's starting to get intense. Hayden has now watched Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer two times, and he's planning on a third viewing sometime this week. (laughs) But Christmas, Christmas from a child's point of view, is a wonder. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Because from an adult point of view, there are many days that go by where we just assume not have to worry about it at all. We just assume... Skip it, you know, pass it by, just because there's so much that we have to do. The kids, they don't even think about it. And my children didn't think twice about the decorations and the packages and the mailing of stuff and the buying of none of that. They, they haven't even bought anything yet. They've got plenty of time. Cheryl, I have been freaking out. You know, and it's what we as adults do, but kids have this ability to, to wonder at things. And I want to invite you to wonder at this story, to marvel tonight at this Red Sea event. As I said on Sunday, it, it probably is best as we begin for you to step back and, and at least pretend for a few minutes like you've never heard of this. Like this story has not happened. Like it's all brand new. Let it hit you like it is for the very first time. I remember I've mentioned in here before that we had a big family Bible in my house growing up. big old white Bible and it had all these great paintings of major events in the Bible. Well, the Red Sea crossing was one of those. It was one of my favorite pictures. Because in it, what it shows is adults and children, the people of Israel walking through the Red Sea. And there's a wall of water on either side. And in the water you can see the outline of a whale over here. And the kids, it's, it's just interesting the way the artist rendered it because the children are all looking up and they're wide-eyed and, and some of them are throwing rocks into the side of the walls of water and then trying to skip them along the side. And, and the adults, the adults are just trying to get the kids through as quickly as possible. They're scared to death. And sometimes that's how we approach God. We, we just, we get scared or we try and move through it quickly while the kids are going, this is so cool. And I want you to have that experience tonight. I want you to say, this is so cool. This is so absolutely amazing. It's mind-boggling what God did, but it's even more amazing why He did it. I want you to see the wonder and, and sense the big picture that children so easily see. To set aside anything else that might be going on right now, and just wonder like children at Christmas time at the glory, the absolute glory of the Lord because He is glorious. Well, let's start in verse 5. We're going to read just for a few minutes here up to verse 10. When the king of Egypt, and we read this on Sunday. I want to just pull back and draw into the story here. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people and they said, what is this we've done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. And that word boldly wasn't like proudly. They were just going out confidently. They were free. They were free of Egypt. And so they went on their way with great confidence, not even imagining in a thousand years that Pharaoh in Egypt was going to come after them. Well, verse 9 tells us, Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihahiroth and in front of Baal Zephon. Amazing. You know, Egypt at this time had been decimated by the plagues. Up to the point that all of the firstborn of Egypt had died. They were wiped out. They were wasted. But Egypt still had one thing going for them. They had their army. And it was massive. It was the most powerful army on the face of the planet at the time. And this was the army that set out after the children of Israel. Well, verse 10 tells us, As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, Sunday we talked about this a bit, that Israel was between a rock and a hard place. In fact, that's where we left them. I don't know if you realize that. While we all went out to lunch, Israel was still in between Pihahiroth and Migdal, between the rock and the hard place. We left them there. They've been there for three days now. And so we're back. So we're going to see them through this situation. But from this side of the Red Sea story, and from the perspective of Israel, what they were facing should have been, could have been, a massive massacre. Backed up to the sea, Egypt should have been able to fly in there and just take them apart and slaughter the lot of them, taking what was left, the weakened, back in to servitude 
in Egypt. This massive army, the Egyptian Humvee chariots, <laughs> were rapidly approaching. The furiously driven commander of Egypt, Pharaoh himself, was among them. And to one side of Israel, the mouth of the caves, Pihahirah, and the other one, Migdol, which means tower. And we can only suppose that there was a mountain that was named Migdol because of its towering appearance. And so you've got the caves on one side and the, and the tower on the other and the sea in front of you. And here comes Egypt behind you. There's literally nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. And this story brings into clear focus what God does, what happens from time to time in our lives. And that's precisely this, that the Lord boxes us in, that the Lord backs us into corners. This is not the action of Egypt, gang. Yeah, Egypt came after them, but this was the action of the Lord. He's the one who led them to camp there. He's the one who set them up, if you will. I don't know if you've ever felt set up by the Lord. I don't know in your life if you've wondered, why am I here? Why am I stuck? God, why did you lead me to this place? I've been there, between Pihahirah and Migdal. Stuck, unable to move, in any direction seems hopeless, and you wonder, God, what in the world are you doing with me here? God brings us to such places from time to time, boxes us in where there is literally nowhere left to turn except to Him. And that's why He does it. Because there's nowhere else we can go. The only possible solution, the only answer is to turn to the Father. And so the sons of Israel cry out to the Lord, but their cries quickly become complaints. Verse 11. After they cried out to the Lord, now they say to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. (laughs) Why are you bringing us out here to die? Now what's interesting is they would have just on their journey passed by the pyramids. The great pyramids of Egypt, which were burial places for the pharaohs. Massive areas of graves for all the important people of Egypt. So apparently right now the children of Israel want their mummies. (laughs) Sorry. They're whining and complaining and they're saying, why not just bury us back in Egypt? We just passed by the pyramids, we could have been buried there, but you're bringing us out here in the wilderness to die? In verse 13, Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Now this is interesting to me. Moses in essence is saying, stand by and shut up. Stand by and shut up. Now even that phrase, stand by, I think it points to what Moses is thinking. And I'll tell you that as soon as the plane is done flying over. stand by. How do we use that phrase? In the world today, when we say stand by, we say, hang on a second. Cool your jets. Stand by. I'm standing by. I'm waiting for something to happen. Stand by, he says, and watch. Stand by and keep silent. And God's going to do something. I think. I hope. See, I really think that's what was on Moses' heart. See, Moses had a faith. But his problem was he still was learning how to move on that faith. He knew God was going to do something. He had no idea what. Stand by and watch. I know the God. I know the Lord is going to take care of us. I'm sure of it. I'm positive. I think. How do you know Moses is thinking this way? Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? The Lord said to Moses, Not to the people of Israel. They were already crying out to him. But apparently now Moses is crying out to God. So what's going on here is Moses and the children of Israel, they've come, they're complaining to him. He's like, okay, stand by, hang on, just a minute. Lord, help! And God says, Moses, what are you you worried about? Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. See, I think Moses is still learning how to move on his faith. He has faith. But he's learning how to move on it. There's a time to pray, in other words. But there's also a time to press on. 
And I'm not invalidating the importance of prayer. But God is saying, hey, you've been crying out. I heard you crying out back in chapter 2 of the book of Exodus. God heard the children crying out. Now is not the time to cry out any longer. Now is the time to move right out into the sea. And we talked about that on Sunday. Now is the time to move, to walk it out. Prayer, gang, is not only linked to the bending of our knees. Prayer is linked to the movement of our feet. That we don't just stand around. There is a time for us to be in the prayer closet. There's also a time for us to be moving in prayer. Going forward in prayer. Moving our feet while we pray. Not just standing around waiting for God to do something. James 5.16, James said, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. An effective prayer gets our feet moving. It gets us acting. It gets us following in faith. When we move without prayer, we're spinning our wheels. But when we pray without ultimately moving forward, we're just spinning our faith. Throwing it up to God, and He says move, throws it back to us, and we throw it back up to Him, and He throws it, and it just goes round and round. God wants us to move, to move out, to move forward. Nehemiah does this. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. We see Nehemiah come before the king. Now, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. And Nehemiah, as a cupbearer to the king, was also a Jew. And at this time, he knew things were bad in Jerusalem. They had been in Babylonian captivity. They had been, quote-unquote, set free. But he needed some permission to go and rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. And it was heavy on Nehemiah's heart. And before the king that he was serving, the king actually said, Nehemiah, I haven't seen you sad like this. What's going on? What's the matter with you? And Nehemiah said, my heart's broken. You know, that my, the wall back there, it, it's... Things aren't good. And the king says to Nehemiah, What would you have me do for you? And Nehemiah doesn't say anything right away. He prays. It says in that moment, he prayed to the Lord. He didn't leave the king. He didn't say, I'll get back to you and go home and get in his prayer closet and spend a couple hours in prayer. It just says in that moment, he prayed to God. And then immediately he asks his request, Give me permission to go back and rebuild the wall. The prayer of Nehemiah there was instantaneous. He was on his feet when he prayed. What are you saying, Rick? Are you saying that we always have to be on our feet? No, there's a time for praying on our knees. There's a time for the prayer closet. There's a time for crying out to God and waiting and listening. But there's also a time to move. To pray on our feet. To pray, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Let me give you a definition for effective prayer. Effective prayer is the constant awareness of the presence of God. That's effective prayer. The constant awareness of the presence of God. That you always know He's there. You always know He's listening. And at any given moment, you can speak to Him and move with Him. That it doesn't take a special occasion. Well, back to verse 16. God has told Moses to move forward. And listen to what He says here. It's interesting. He says... As for me, no wait, sorry, yeah, as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. You might underline or just remember on dry land. It's not the first time you'll hear that, it's the first of three times you'll hear on dry land. Verse 17, as for me, behold, the Lord says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots, and his horsemen. Now there's an interesting picture that unfolds here as Moses prepares to part the Red Sea. Before he does it, before anything happens, think about this. God says, take your staff and stretch it over the sea. And as we've talked about before, the staff, the rod, it's a sign of authority. And the staff is a sign of authority. Genesis 49.10 tells us, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The staff, that sign of authority. Psalm 2.9 says, You shall rule them with a rod of iron. Speaking of Jesus, in that time of the millennium, that he with his staff, his rod of authority, will rule them with a rod of iron. And the Lord saying to Moses, I gave you a staff. Use it. Use your authority, Moses. Speak with, act with authority. Don't hold back here. And so the staff is a sign of authority. Put that together with this picture, the water. The water of the Red Sea. The water in the scripture is often a picture of 
the Word. The Word itself. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And that phrase, accurately handling, is orthomateo. Orthomateo. And what that means specifically is to make a straight cut, or as the King James defines it, to rightly divide. He says, rightly divide the word of truth. Accurately handle it. Rightly divide it. Part the word and move into it. The staff of authority and the word of truth. For anyone in leadership, and this is important, and we all are in leadership, by the way, whether it's with our friends, whether it's at, the, at home or in the job site or at school, whatever, each of us in some, at, at some place have authority. And what God is telling Moses here is, use your authority to part the sea. And I would say the same for us. When you hold out the rod of authority, use it to rightly divide the word of truth. Lead those around you into the water of the word. Remember, true biblical leadership, it, it depends on two things. I was just having a conversation this morning about this very thing. This is what matters. And we have to keep coming back to this again and again and again. With our elders, in our meetings, as we talk about things. Two things matter for a church leader, for a pastor, for an elder. Two things. The ministry of the word and prayer. That's it. Psalm 6.4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Those two things. That's it. And that's leadership. Because in prayer we get walking and in the word we are washed. Which is why you come here on the cold, dark Wednesday night. To get washed by the word. And it happens. As we get into the Word, it washes over us. It changes us. In fact, listen to what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. He said, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He uses a powerful metaphor here. They were baptized into the sea as they were, the sea was rightly divided and they went into it. They were washed. They were baptized. They were immersed. It's a powerful use of that Greek word baptizo, which means literally to immerse. And it's one of the reasons why we immerse in baptism today. To be completely washed. And the Lord is clearly interested in a thorough washing of His people. Baptism in and of itself is a graphic depiction of that washing, of our burial and our resurrection with Christ. But you may ask, okay, Paul says that they were baptized into Moses in the sea, but how are they baptized? Because the reality is they walked through the sea on dry land. Their feet never got wet. It never touched them in any way, shape, or form. Though they went into the sea, they never actually touched the water. So how were they baptized? They were baptized into the Word. And the Word was go. Go into the sea. Walk through it. Get washed. How are they washed? By trusting the Lord. By listening to Him. By obeying. And by moving out into the sea. In a like manner, there's a continual cleansing that takes place as we walk through the rightly divided Word of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, tells us Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Something is interesting to me, and let me just give you a little side note on this, because again, it rolls out of a conversation I had today. It's interesting to see how churches progress, especially when it comes to Bible study. And we go through seasons. And, and I want you to hear my heart on this because the fact that you're here and desiring to be in the Word speaks volumes about where you're at in your lives. This time last year, all the bridge had was Wednesday night. That's all we had. And so everybody came and that was, I mean, that was our worship, it was our fellowship, it was our Word time, it was all three mixed into one. Well, then Sundays came along and we added Sunday morning in January of last year. And when we added Sundays, now there was kind of a, a choice. And so what we saw kind of happen was an easing up a bit. A few less people coming on Wednesday nights, a few more coming Sunday morning. I'm sharing this with you because you have nothing to feel guilty about. If I was sharing this on Sunday, it might be a guilt trip message. That's not my point. But I just want to share something. I want you to understand something that I think is an interesting progression. We went from that place where everybody was there and everybody was hungry and the Bibles were open and the notes were just flying. 
And then we went to a place from there where there were options. And so it became less uh, less important. But still, people come and, and we're in a, you know, the season, it goes up and down. And that's understandable. And, and that's fine. But we went from another place. And that was having the Sunday and the Wednesday thing. And then we have kind of gone to a place where even the taking of notes is less often. And those of you not taking notes right now, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to make you feel bad. But how are we going to truly know? How are we going to really understand the Word if we're not doing everything we can to be in the Word? I want to encourage you. The thing about taking notes, about having the Bible open, about following along when we study, why is it so important? Because if we're not seeking to grasp and understand the Word, we're going to miss it. When I was in college, I started out, by, I was a Bible major, and so I had Bible classes all week long. And I was trying to find the right church. And there were some of the best Bible teachers at several of these churches in this town that we were in. And I could go from one to another. Good job, Chris. Grab that Bible. I could go from one to another, and, and there was amazing teaching. And so I'd go, I'd go listen to the teaching, and then I had the teaching in my classes. And I was furiously taking notes because, hey, I was going to be a minister someday. I needed to know how to preach, and so I would take notes and keep them all. But after a while, I kind of got... Well, burned out. There was so much of it. I had the classes every day. and I had, So I, I gave myself permission to just go to church and just kind of soak it up. Just listen, you know, kind of get into it. And my progression, and I'm not saying that this is yours, but it was mine. And I do believe it has kind of a human element to it. Was as I sat there and tried less and less to get into the Word, I got further and further away from it. To where it was no longer very important. Um, to where I go to church and not even have a Bible or, or I stopped going. And Cheryl knows this. For the last three years of college life for me, I rarely went to church at all. And what I'm telling you, and, and I am going to talk, bring this up with, with the whole fellowship, there are two things that matter in this church that we've talked about. It's prayer, being in the Spirit, and the ministry of the Word, being in the Word. And the way to be in the Word is to use everything at our disposal. When my kids are studying homework and I want to help them learn something and know it for a test, I give them a pencil and a piece of paper and say, speak it, write it, hear it. Use every bit of your senses that you can to get it in. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. Use everything at your disposal to draw the Word into you, to understand it better. And, and you may not, many of us are not note takers. Not, you know, I'd rather just listen because if I'm taking notes I miss it but I say to you if, if you're taking notes you're getting what you're hearing deeper into you and I'm, it's just an encouragement it was a total soapbox there sidetracking there but the word is so vitally important to us I've seen two directions that people can go with the word of God in Bible study direction number one is that they can listen to it and enjoy it and get filled up on it but direction number two is they can get into it, and as they get filled up on it, they continually find themselves more and more hungry. Now, you know because of what I have to do, I'm in it pretty much every day, studying so that I can just be ready for Sundays and Wednesdays. I'm pouring over trying to understand it. But i got to tell you something. Something has happened in my life that I never thought would happen. I'm hungrier now than I was a year ago. I'm hungrier now than I was two years ago. And what I'm discovering for myself personally is the more I'm into the Word, pouring over it, trying to understand it, the hungrier I get, not the more full. And that's my heart, that's my desire for each of you. It's my desire for the whole fellowship. Well, back to the story. I just think it's interesting, the right dividing of the Word. The Word washes us. And in the same way, God is going to divide the sea. And the children are going to go through it. And they are going to be baptized into this whole faith, into this trust, into this belief. Well, verse 19. And this is interesting. It says, The angel of God, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. Now, stop this for a moment. The angel of God. The angel of God. You may recall the Old Testament word angel is not like the New Testament word, specifically in the Greek it's angelos, but in the Hebrew the word simply means the messenger of God. And we have seen many times, and I believe this is one of them, what's called Christophanies. That is, pre-incarnate pictures of Jesus. Jesus Christ himself showing up in the Old Testament. Not just an angel. And we've seen many of those places where, how do you know it's Jesus? Because the angel speaks, and it is, he is speaking as God. 
or the angel is worshipped. And we know from other places in scripture an angel cannot allow himself to be worshipped. Angels do not accept worship unless that angel happens to be the messenger of God, Jesus Christ himself. And I believe that that's what we're seeing here. The angel of God, the pre-incarnate Jesus who is going before the camp of Israel and now he moved and went behind them. Why is that important to understand? Because God was with them. As we talked about back at Camp Etham, with them. He was with them. He was before them. And now as Egypt begins to come after them, he moves from before them to behind them. He moves from the place of being their guide now to being their guardian. He moves from, shield, from, from steering them forward to shield, shielding them behind. Psalm 3 verse 1 tells us, Oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no deliverance for him in God. And right here in Psalm, it says, in Psalm 3, right between verse 2 and 3, it says, Selah. Selah is a pause. It's a pause. It, it, it's, it has to do with the music like they would speak the poetry or the music, sing it, and then they'd stop. Maybe it was a musical interlude, but the psalmist stops here. After saying, many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. Pause. Wait a minute. Verse 3, he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. God is shielding them, even though Egypt's coming after them. Now watch this. The wording is fascinating. Second part of the verse. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Now you might say, okay, Rick, that messes up your whole message a couple weeks ago when we talked about the cloud being a covering. Because right here it tells us the pillar of cloud moved from before them to behind them. So it must have been a pillar, not a covering at all. Well, a couple of problems. Number one, the Bible says it was a covering. And we looked at that. But the other thing to understand, this word pillar, which we also looked at, pillar doesn't just mean an up and down kind of cotton candy pillar. It means also a platform. So if you read it that way, the platform of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. But there's still that word before. If it moved from before them to behind them, then the cloud was out in front and not over them. But the word before, literally translated, is from the face of. Moved from their face, where they could see it here, to back here. This is what I think happened. I think the cloud covered them as the Bible tells us it did. But when Egypt was coming, this big, thick, black cloud that was also light in the night rolled back and became a wall. This massive covering over all of Israel leaned back and went behind Israel as this huge wall in between Israel on one side and Egypt on the other. So thick, so massive, so menacing that Egypt stopped. The chariots stopped. Pharaoh said, whoa, hold up. We can't go through anything. Could it be like fog? Like, like a fog. It could be like a fog. Really thick, but it was a, a massive wall. Now watch this. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 gives us something amazing. It came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. Okay, we've just said that. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Now I had to look closely at this one to understand this better. The cloud moves from before them, literally from their face, to a flanking position behind them. But check this out. I'm going to read this in the King James Version because it is actually a better translation when you look at at the original language. It came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. It was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these. So that no one, so that the one could not come near the other all night. The way this is set up, and, and it, it's part of it is understanding the poetry of, of Israel. It's understanding Hebrew poetry and, and the way Hebrew was writing. It came between Egypt and Israel, and it was dark and it was light. Well, who was it dark for? Who was it light for? The way they set it up is Egypt, Israel, dark, light. The dark would go to the first, the light to the second. In other words, 
For Egypt, the wall was a solid wall of darkness. For Israel, it was a solid wall of light. This thick cloud in between them, dark to Egypt, menacing, frightening to Egypt, but light, shedding light over all of Israel as they were encamped up against the sea. And the implication is huge here. It's massive. It's amazing to me. That this light for some and darkness for others, this concept is exactly what the Word of God is in our world today. For you and I, it's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It elucidates things. It illuminates our world. We're able to read the study and then when we sit down and watch the news, we see it differently. When we see people acting and behaving and living around us, we see them, perceive them differently. We perceive them in the light. We can see and know and function better in the light. But to many people, the word is darkness and gloom. It's menacing. It's confusing. John chapter 1 verse 5 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot understand it. The darkness doesn't comprehend it. How many people do you know who assume the Bible is just too hard? It just doesn't make sense. I don't want to go sit in church and listen to someone teach out of the Bible. How boring. Now, if you've been in the Word for any amount of time, especially following through Genesis and Exodus, this is not a boring story. This is not a boring book. And this is certainly not a book that doesn't apply. It's amazing. It's powerful. It is illuminating. Again, how many people wonder why you would drive out to a barn on a dark, cold night like this? Because you want to be lit up. Because you want and seek illumination. Meanwhile, there are many in their warm, comfy, fireplace-lit living rooms right now watching the news and they're perplexed. And they're confused. And they do not understand why the world is such a mess. I understand. The Word tells us it's going to be a mess. They watch what's going on in the Middle East. Man, this whole Iraq thing, we just got to pull out of there. We just got just to avoid it. We just take care of ourselves and let the Middle East go and not be involved. And what is the answer? And they don't know. And governments are experiencing great consternation. They're perplexed, confused, and that's what darkness yields. And that's where Egypt was. On this side of the solid wall of cloud, it was darkness. We don't even know where we are. Where did Israel go? It's like, I think they're on the other side of that thing, but I'm not going in there. It's confusing. It's dark. Israel, however, is on the other side. And Israel is lit up. There are people raising children in the dark. People struggling with marriages in the dark. Frustrated at school or at work in the dark. But the Bible tells us for the believer in Christ, we are sons of light. We are given light, illumination, which maybe that's why I go off every now and then, like I did a few minutes ago, about being into the Word. Because there are even Christians who are choosing to live confused and in the dark when we have the light. When God has brought the light to us. We, because of the Word, can see things clearly. We see the world, the times, the seasons with clarity, with understanding. And gang, it's not a boastful perspective, it's a biblical perspective. What is a wall of darkness to the world by God's grace and His Spirit is a covering of light to the Christian. And if I'm confused in the world, if I'm perplexed, if, if things just are, are hard, I'm not making sense of them... We need to get back to the biblical perspective. This is the judgment, Jesus said in John 3.19, that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And that's kind of the bottom line. If I come into the light, everybody's going to know I'm a sinner. Yes, absolutely. Welcome to our club. One of the things we all in this room here tonight know because we are people of the light is that we need God. We need grace. We need salvation. We can't get it on our own. We're redeemed by Him and not by us. Jesus says everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be seen as having been wrought in God. 
We bring our stuff to the light. We want God to clear out. We want Him to shine the great flashlight of His grace and His mercy into all the nooks and crannies of our life to clear out the junk so that we can be pure before Him. He wants us to be in the light as He is in the light. And now for the story we've all been waiting for. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so that the waters were divided. So that phrase, dry landing, and that's the second time. Verse 22, the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, third time. And the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. I love this. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve. Literally, he caused their wheels to come off. As they're driving down into the sea after the children of Israel, the chariot wheels start to pop off. The Lord did that. And it says that they, he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Aha, uh-huh, they're cluing in. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. In the Charlton Heston movie, Yul Brynner stands there and watches them all go into the sea. He doesn't go in. In the real story, Pharaoh is in the sea. He leads his army right down into the sea. It's the entire massive army of Egypt and they are wiped out. Verse 29, But the sons of Israel walked on, here it is the fourth time, dry land through the midst of the sea and the waters were like a wall second time he says this were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant it's an awesome story it's an amazing story and it yielded right then that day among the Israelites, it yielded both fear and belief, as we will see. Now, as we noted Sunday, the Lord backed the people into the corner for just such an awesome event as this. But why? Again, why does God do it? Why does He back us up against the sea? Let me give you quickly four things to jot down. Four things to write down about why God would do this, why He boxes us in. Quickly. Number one, that we might see the power of God. Why does God back us up against the sea? That we might see the power of God. What's interesting with this story is there are many people over the years, over the decades, over the centuries, literally over the millennia, who have tried to downplay the supernatural in this story. Scholars and critics alike have tried to take the miraculous edge off of this story to bring the supernatural down to the natural. To make it explainable and understandable. And you need to understand as you read through this story that this was a miracle. That this was a supernatural action of God. There's no two ways about it. Now, it's been suggested that the Red Sea, the phrase in Hebrew is Yom Suf. Y-A-M-S-U-P-H. Yam Suf. And Yam Suf literally means Red Sea. Or it could mean Sea of Reeds. It can go either way. And so they say, well, the Sea of Reeds. Oh, that's easy. It was just a marsh. Maybe six to seven, eight inches of water. That's how deep it was. And when they look at it, if you recall the, the map that we had on Sunday, there's, there's the canal of the, the Suez Gulf, actually, that goes up on the right side of the Red Sea. And I was saying on Sunday, they crossed that gulf. Well, if you look up above that, there's dry land, and then up there is called the Bitter Lakes. And there is a belief that the Red Sea actually kind of extended, but more like a marsh on up to the Red Lake or the, the uh, Bitter Lakes. 
that area was actually at one time covered with water, but it was marshy and had reeds and it was only six to eight inches deep. And so what really happened is right at that time, perhaps there was an earthquake that caused that, that marshland to kind of be divided and get dry. Or maybe there was an east wind that blew. Those winds can blow awfully hard and they can in the wilderness. So a hot east wind could actually push the water aside so there was somewhat of a pathway through that six to eight inches of water and they just went across that and it wasn't a problem and it was easy and it was of natural causes if that were the case and supposing for a moment that it was the Reed Sea and not the Red Sea and that it was only six to eight inches deep and that it just kind of got blown apart by a strong east wind if that was the case if we even give this to the critics and say alright that's what happened then my friends the miracle is greater than we originally thought it's more powerful. It's more amazing than having a huge sea part and people walking through. Why? Because Pharaoh's entire army drowned in six to eight inches of water. How do you pull that off? How do you do that? Egypt's greatest charioteers. Did I say Israel's army? Egypt's greatest charioteers went down in a bog. That's a miracle. That's, that's supernatural. It's impossible. I mean, so much for Pharaoh's finest. Can you imagine this? And people have tried to argue, and when you argue one side of it, you lose the other side. The sea had to be big enough to drown an army. Had to be. It also had to be big enough to fit the wording of the passage. Look at verse 22 again. They went through the midst of the sea on dry land. Dry land. It wasn't wet at all. It wasn't even mucky. It was dry. And the waters were like a wall. Okay, yeah, but how many people witnessed that? More than three million. How many people saw it happen? Millions of people saw it with their own eyes and did not dispute it. And what's interesting about all the disputed criticism of this Red Sea passage, it all is way after the fact. You're holding in your hands the oldest document referring to Israel passing through the Red Sea. It's the Bible. And any other criticisms come hundreds of years later when people look back and go, there's got to be a natural explanation for this. Let's see if we can figure that out. But the people who were there at the time knew the truth, saw the truth. They saw the power of God. And by the way, it wasn't just Israel. It spread around to the surrounding nations very quickly. The surrounding nations were aware of this miracle, of this might, and of the fact that God was going before them. And so the word spread, and it was understood, there is a God who parted that sea, who lifted up walls of water with a dry path for the people to march through. Dry land, walls of water. Amazing. I mean, we can leave it to the critics, but as for me, I'm just going to take God at His word. Because that makes sense. Why did God do it? Again, number one, that we might see the power of God. And again, we will never fully understand, never fully know, never fully comprehend God's power until we are in a place where we cannot solve the problem by any other means. You see, human nature is, if I can pull it off on my own, I will. If I can do it, I'm going to do it. If I can pull it together and make it happen, I will do that. Part of the reason why the bridge is here is because I want to see what God can do. With no resources, zero, no, nothing to work off of, nothing to build from. This is not a church that was planted by another church. It's just a church that God made happen. And it is a miracle that it's here at all. We are backed up against the sea. When we can't move in any direction without failure, when we can literally not do anything about it ourselves, that's when, that's when we begin to rely on God. And Paul knew this probably better than any man. Let me just tell you about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. In this place, Paul says, Man, I had a sword in, uh, a thorn in the flesh. I had an issue, I had a problem, and I prayed that God would take it away. Take away the problem, Lord. And he said, no, because my strength is perfected in your weakness. 
When you are weak, then I am strong in you. It's when we're weak. It's not when we're powerful. It's not when we're accomplishing and when we know we got everything under control. It's when we don't have a handle on anything and things still go well. And God still brings us through the dark times. That's when we recognize His power. And Paul knew that. And Paul, writing, by the way, to the Corinthian church, was incredibly, incredibly vulnerable. I'm going to flip over 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Because there's something else that Paul says here. He's writing to this people. And part of the reason why the second letter to the church at Corinth was written was he was trying to get them to understand to accept his authority as an apostle. They were not believing him. They were kind of looking at him as weak, as a wimp. And so Paul says to them in verse 3 of chapter 13, 2 Corinthians, Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, Indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Paul saying, man, you can call me weak, and you're right, I'm weak. You can call me a loser, fine. You can say I don't have clear words to speak. I don't have the ability to be this power apostle. You can say that. Go right ahead. It's true. It's even more amazing then that anything good is happening. It's the power of God in me. Paul had planted numerous churches. He had survived amazing things. It was the power of God in him. Peter recognized the power of God. Acts chapter 3. It was just after the ascension of Jesus and Peter and, and John. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they come walking into Jerusalem. And there's a lame man by the road and by, by the temple. And he, he's asking for alms. And Peter says, I got nothing. I have no silver to give you. I have no gold to give you. I have nothing to give you. But this, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Amazing confidence. Peter knew he had nothing personally of in and of himself to give, but what he did have was the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus to heal. And because Peter had that faith, the man stood up and walked. God will back us into corners so that we might see the power of God at work in us. But secondly, the Lord will also lead us between a rock and a hard place that we might see the presence of God. That we might see the power of God, but also the presence of God. And remember, Israel, while the other people, the Egyptians, were in the dark, they experienced this miraculous light. Israel already had deliverance. They, had, they already had this mighty fire cloud lifted up before them. But now the Lord walks them through an impassable situation and gives them an impossible illumination. And they're able to see in ways that they couldn't have seen without the Lord. The best of the best of the world's armies and the finest of their chariots, horsemen, riders, and generals cannot harm you, Israel, because I am with you, the Lord is teaching them. And 1 John 4.4 4 says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And I know you've heard that verse before, but man, we need to commit that one to our hearts. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And he who is in the world is going to try and make you think that you're weak and make you think that you're small and make you think that you're in trouble. But greater is he who is in you. And if we believe that, how much confidence grows from that? Paul said in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who's against us? Who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. And God wants us to see, wants us to know, wants us to understand. When we're in the tight spots, the hard places, he is present. He's there. He's with us. He boxes us in so that we might see His power, His presence. Number three, that we might see the preeminence of God. And perhaps this is the most important one we're going to look at right now. The preeminence of God. What reason did the Lord give for the Red Sea event? 
Why did God say, I'm going to bring you through the Red Sea? Why did He lead them back up and over and around to specifically take them in? What was His purpose for it? Look back at at verse 4 of chapter 14. Verse 4 tells us the reason. He says, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Verse 18, he says it again. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I am honored through Pharaoh and through his chariots and his horsemen, God's spoken reason, listen to this, don't miss this, God's spoken reason for taking Israel through the Red Sea had nothing to do with Israel. They were already saved. He was going to bring them to the promised land one way or another. But he backtracks them, corners them, and brings them through the Red Sea, not for their sake, but for the sake of Egypt. Oh wait, didn't all the Egyptians die in the Red Sea? No. The army died in the Red Sea. There's still the Egyptians back home. And it was for their sake that God did this. Not for Israel's. Not even for Pharaoh's. But for the sake of the Egyptians. Those back in Egypt. What's the point of that? Listen. This word honored. He says, I will be honored by the Egyptians. I will be honored among the Egyptians when this happens. That word honored is the Hebrew word for glory. It's kabod. And the word doesn't just mean glory. It means heavy glory. The weight of God. The heaviness of The weight of God's glory, a thick, powerful, heavy glory. And gang, the tough spot that you may even now be in may have nothing to do with you whatsoever. It may be for someone else. The fact is, God is preeminent. And He will let the world know, He will show the world that He is preeminent. And the Egyptians needed to see it. But it wasn't just Egypt who needed to see it. Check out chapter 15, verse 14. says, The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Philistines. And then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. And the leaders of Moab were trembling. Trembling grips them. And all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. So it wasn't just Egypt, but Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan. All of the peoples around saw, understood, were made aware of the preeminence of the Lord because of what He did to Israel. I don't know if that sounds fair. I mean, if I get you right, what you're saying, Rick, is that God used Israel for His own purposes. Yep. That's right. He used them. So that he would be seen as preeminent. Well, wait, 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 wait. So you're saying that God might use me to glorify himself among other people? Mm-hmm. He might. It may very well be that a predicament that you or I land in has nothing to do with us. But God is using us to glorify himself in the face of others. You might say, I'm stuck in this job. I'm stuck in this marriage. I'm stuck in this situation. And that's not fair, Lord. God would say, I don't exist for you. You exist for me. I am God. I am the Lord. And I have you there for my reasons. And this is hard teaching, but gang, maybe that means the cancer will not go away. Maybe that means the job will not get better or you won't find any way out of it. Maybe that means the bridge will be stuck on this barn for a while. Not that that's such a bad thing. Maybe that means the war on terror will not be won by man. Maybe these tight spots we get in won't get better, at least in the short term. Because God has a magnificent, preeminent plan. Think about this. A man named Jairus, synagogue leader, his daughter was dying and Jesus could have stopped it and he didn't. His daughter died. Why? To prove a point. That God is God. And Jesus, of course, went and raised her from the dead. And God was glorified because of it. Lazarus, Jesus' best friend, or one of his closest friends anyway, died And Jesus knew about it in time that he could have gotten there and healed him before death. 
And all the friends and family, Mary and Martha and everyone else who had to deal with the death and the sorrow and the mourning. It could have all been avoided if Jesus had just gotten up on his feet and instead of waiting three days, ran right over to where Lazarus was and healed him. But he didn't. Why? So that God would be glorified. To prove a point. And Jesus himself died for the same reason. That God would be glorified. So that people would see that God is preeminent. And the night before Jesus died, and possibly the most amazing thing Jesus spoke on planet earth, he said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Even if that means that nails are going to go through my hands. Even if that means that I will be hung up and jeered at and scorned and laughed at and I will die an excruciating death. Even if that's what that means. If it will bring you glory, your will be done. Not mine. Luke 22:42. Lord, I don't exist for you. Or no, I do exist for you. You don't exist for me. And we, man, if we can embrace that and understand it, it will change our perspective on the world. God is not up there like Santa Claus just waiting around to bring us good things. He wants to give good gifts to His children. He loves us. And He has an eternity in mind. But there are times in our lives where He will be glorified through the pain, the struggle, the difficulty that we are suffering through. Israel was cornered that they might see the power, the presence, and even that the preeminence of God would be seen. And it may not seem fair right now, but it will. I can at least promise you that it will. It will all seem fair. Number four and finally, that we might see the prophetic plan of God. That we might see the prophetic plan of God. God does something here. That is, is amazing to me. And, and it, it never ceases to amaze me how God writes in His will and the big picture of history into momentous events like the Red Sea crossing. Listen to this. Biblically, the nations of the world are often referred to as a sea. The nations are called a sea. Psalm 65.7 says, Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples? The psalmist is using that comparison that the seas are a picture of humanity, of the nations. Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now for Daniel, that would have probably been the Mediterranean Sea. But in this vision, the sea is being stirred by the four winds of heaven. And he says, and four great beasts were coming up out of the sea, different from one another. Four beasts coming out of a sea. Well, what in the world could that mean? Well, Daniel explains it, and a careful study of the passage yields this. That these four beasts are four nations that will follow each other consecutively in history. Four nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And these four nations are critical because they all are four nations that had to do with Israel. And Rome will have to do with Israel again in the future. But these four great nations come up out of the sea. The sea is a picture of the multitude of nations in the world. Revelation 17, verse 1 says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters or seas. And then down in verse 15 of that same chapter, it says that, He said to me, The waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, the seas. Now I tell you that to tell you this. As Israel goes through the parted Red Sea, and as the sea is often a picture of the nations of the world, so God is bringing Israel through the nations. The nations will be parted. The nations will be divided. In fact, the nations are divided, are they not, over Israel. I mean, you're either for him or against him in this world. There's no middle ground. There's no Sweden when it comes to Israel. There's no hanging back and being Switzerland, actually, and saying, I don't have a position. No, you have a position. You are either for Israel or you are against it. The nations are already currently divided. And God's children are brought through the sea. 
back to the promised land even as Egypt or the world pursues them and the sea will part the nations become divided and Jerusalem itself will become a cup that causes reeling to the very end I want you to flip to Zechariah 12 we'll end there tonight Zechariah chapter 12 I, I honestly I cannot wait until we get to Zechariah I hope that we get to Zechariah we may not yeah <laughs> it'll take us a while it's only that far to go right there Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 1 listen to this discussion this prophecy this explanation of what Zechariah termed as the last days or looked at as the end of time listen closely the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel verse 1 Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Listen to this. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. Right now, today, in our world, Jerusalem is a cup of reeling. It is a cup that causes trembling. It is a confusion. It is a perplexity to the world. What do we do with Jerusalem? Not just Israel, by the way. I mean, there's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that goes on. But one thing that they have yet to deal with at all in giving the Palestinians their own state is what are they going to do with Jerusalem? Because the Palestinians claim Jerusalem as their capital. And Israel claims Jerusalem as their capital. What are you going to do with Jerusalem? Right now, in our world, Jerusalem is a cup that causes reeling. And verse 3 says, It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the people. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. And the Lord will also save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Gang, you don't want to be part of a nation that is set against Jerusalem. Verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who would that be? That's Jesus. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Why read that now? Listen to this. The nations may seek to destroy Israel. But God is going to part the sea of nations before them. And ultimately they will fall before Israel at the grand and glorious coming of the one who will be seated on David's throne. And that is Jesus when he comes again. But the point of all this is simply to say that God's same purpose in the Red Sea is his purpose with Israel today. The purpose is the same. That they might see that they might see and know the Lord. That they might see Him as God. That when He parts again the sea for them, not the Red Sea in Egypt, but the sea of all the nations, when He parts them and brings them through safely back to the promised land, they will see Him. They will mourn for Him. And finally, they will recognize Jesus as Lord that they might see Him. By the way, how do Moses and Israel respond to the mighty, glorious deliverance of God? Just look at verse 1 of 15, Exodus 15. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. 
and said, I will sing to the Lord for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. I will sing to the Lord. I love this. Moses, the one who was slow of tongue, the one who couldn't speak well, who said to God, I, I, can't, I can't leave the people. I'm a stutterer and you want me to speak for the people? I can't do Now he's singing. Now he can't help himself. Now they come through the Red Sea to the other side and Moses, Moses breaks into song and it is one of the most eloquent songs in Scripture. And by the way, it's the first song. It's the first song in the Bible. It's also the last song in the Bible. And we'll talk about that on Sunday. Let's pray. Father God, that we might see your glory. That's the whole point, I think, of this study. That we might see and know and understand that you are God, that you are powerful and that you are present and that you are preeminent. (laughs) Amazing thought, Father, that you actually are more important than I am. That you actually are the center of all things. And it's not me. Father, I just want to ask that you would give us tonight, those of us who are gathered here, faith and strength to stand even when our backs are up against the sea. And remind us in those times that you are powerful and that you are very present and that your purposes are being fulfilled but Father would you especially remind us that you are God and that your preeminence is more important than our predicament that your greatness far outweighs your glory far surpasses any temporary fleeting needs that we might have in this life Oh God, increase our faith that we would believe this and know this and live this way before you. We praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.